Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles now and turn once again to Romans chapter 8. We're in verse 31 today, Romans 8, 31 to the end of the chapter. Today feels a little bit like packing day. We've been in Romans uh, since back in August, and as we announced last week, we plan to take a break over the summer months and come back in August uh, to Romans chapter 9. Uh, we've made it up the theological mountainside, haven't we, in Romans 1 through 8. A few weeks ago, we made it to what I called the peak or the summit of the doctrine of justification by faith, which is Romans chapter 8, verse 1, which says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we've camped out during this month on top of the mountain as Paul unpacks the implications of being God's redeemed children. Two of the primary implications you might remember, of course, are that we can as believers and should have confidence in our prayer life because the Holy Spirit helps us even when we don't know how to pray. The second implication is that we can and should have assurance of our eternal destiny. That is, when we die, we can know that we're going to heaven. Now, believers are not afterthoughts in God's eternal redemptive plan. We don't sneak into heaven through the back door. As we saw last Sunday, God chose us to place his saving love upon us before we were born. He predestined us that we should become holy like Jesus. And at a point of time in our lives individually, he calls us out of spiritual death through the effectual calling and grants to us faith and repentance and spiritual life. At that moment, he justified us by an act of his grace and has promised that one day he will give us new and glorified bodies free of sin and sin's effects. And if that were not enough, he puts his personal promise and pledge and seal of approval on our heavenly inheritance, which he says he's standing guard and it's awaiting us in heaven. Now, you might think that Paul has thoroughly vanquished any notion that a true Christian can lose his or her salvation. But Paul's not quite finished yet. In our text today, Paul anticipates and asks a series of questions to drive the point of assurance deep into our collective consciousness. And so uh, there are technically seven questions in this passage of scripture, but I've titled the message today, Five Questions with No Answers. Now I say there are five questions with no answers, not because the answers are unclear, but the answers could not be clear. The answer to each of the five questions is the word no, or some variation of the word no. So let's, uh, get to our text this morning, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. 
For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created things will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. And Paul begins with a rhetorical question. What then shall we say to these things? Now, what things is Paul referring to? Well, those things we looked at last week, which I called the golden chain of assurance, God's foreknowledge, that before we were born, he set his saving love upon every believer. He predestined every believer that they would be conformed to the image of Christ. He called us out of spiritual death to spiritual life. He justified us and pronounced us not guilty. And one day he will glorify us. And so that leads to Paul's first question that I have listed here, which is, who or what should believers fear? Who or what should believers fear? Now, with the exception of God, of course, the answer is no one and no thing. Look at verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. What shall we say? What is the proper response to the golden chain of assurance. Well, it's, it's silence. <laughs> There's nothing that can be said to rebut it. Paul has made his case so tightly that it seems to be beyond question. Drop the microphone, let's all go home. But just in case you're not convinced, Paul drives home one more nail into this theological assurance. He says, if God is for us. Now, that sounds like there's possibilities not, right? which is just the opposite of the point Paul is trying to make. And so uh, what that really says is since God is for us, who can oppose us successfully? The answer is no one and no thing. Now here's why a good theological foundation is very helpful. I said last week that one of the tasks that our pastors take very seriously here is to help every believer build a theological foundation or skeleton upon which to build a worldview. And uh, when I became the pastor here 17 years ago, my first sermon series was on the attributes of God because I want to establish very firmly what the Bible says about the nature of God and who He is and what He's like. And we, we use some theological words there that uh, we continue to use week by week. And, and the word that comes to mind when we think of the question, if God is on our side, who can be successful against us, is that He is omnipotent which means he has unlimited power. He is peerless in power. Now, Eastern religions teach a concept called the yin and the yang, right? That there are two powerful forces in the universe. They're sort of duking it out and we'll have to wait until it's all finished to see who wins. Please don't have the notion that God and Satan are two powerful and equal forces. They are not. Satan is a created being and his destiny is already prescribed in the book of Revelation where he will spend eternity in the lake of fire which was created for he and the demons. God does not have a rival. He is omnipotent. He is peerless. And so Paul is not saying here that we Christians don't have enemies. He's not being Pollyannish and says, well, we don't have anybody that's against us. We know that we have an enemy. The Bible calls him the enemy, Satan. He's real and alive. The scripture says that he is like a roaring lion roaming about seeking he, he can destroy. Theologians describe the enemies of Christians in three broad categories, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so the world is the system that is controlled by Satan and the world that is set against Christians and the things of God. 
the flesh being ourselves, which Paul talked about in chapter 7, was his primary struggle, his own flesh. And then there is a, a demonic world that we cannot see that is absolutely real. But Paul is not saying we don't have enemies. He's just saying none of these enemies are more powerful than God. He's really describing the same sentiment that David does in the 23rd Psalm when he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. This is what Paul is saying. With God on our side, we have nothing to fear. So who or, should, or what should believers fear? No one and no thing. And so if no one or no thing from the outside can successfully get at us, maybe God will change his mind about us. That's a thought that's been spread around. That we can lose our salvation, that God might grow tired of us, that uh, we might sin our way out of grace. What does Paul have to say about that? Verse 32, will God change his mind? How will he not also with him freely give us all things? So the answer to the question, will God change his mind about believers, is the same answer that all five of these questions have is no, never, ever. And here is how we know God will never change his mind about us because another attribute of God, not only is he omnipotent, he is immutable, which means he does not change. This is a fundamental difference between God and every other human being. God's not a human being. He's different, distinct. He's God. He doesn't change. We humans change. We are capricious we believe one thing one day and another thing the next. We behave civilly one day and the next day we don't. This is not like God. Remember, Paul established this truth right away in this letter to Romans, chapter 1, when he said God has a fixed disposition against sin. He hates it all the time. It's the same disposition all the time. So what I'm getting at is God's not going to change his mind once that he has granted you grace. He's already done the greatest thing possible to prove his love for you and that he gave his son. Jesus says no greater love is any man than he lays down his life for his friends. Everything else is a lesser proof of God's love. And so if he's already given the greatest proof of his love by sending his own son to die for you, it stands to reason that anything else you need in your life, he stands ready to give you if it's within his will. I was thinking this week about a family that used to live around the corner from us, attended this church, dear, dear family, a young man and a, a, his wife got married about the same time my wife and I did, and our kids were growing up together, and they, they were blessed with a son, their first child, but very soon into his first year of life, it was discovered that he had a kidney problem that would require a transplant, and so um, his mother volunteered one of her kidneys. And they went up to Mayo Clinic, and they did that procedure, and they came home. And a couple years later, she became pregnant with their second child, this time a daughter. And she was born, and sure enough, a few months into her life, she was diagnosed with the same kidney disease. And her dad gave her his kidney. And so now all four of them have one kidney. And I've often thought that the Valadez children don't ever have to wonder if their parents love them. Because every time they take their clothes off at night, they see that scar that proves the love of their parents. Now, they also don't have to wonder if they need a new pair of shoes or something to eat, if their parents love them enough to do that for them, do they? Because if they're willing to give a kidney out of love, they're willing to give something to eat to their children. And this is why we can have confidence in our prayer life. If God the Father it loves us so much that he'll give that which is most precious to him, his own dear son, 
Everything else we need is a much lesser expression of that love, isn't it? And so we can come with confidence, and he invites us to come with confidence into his throne room and make our petitions and need known to us. This is his point. God's not ever going to change his mind. He set his love on us, and he's going to see it through to the end. His son's blood will not be shed in vain. 1 Timothy 6, 17, this is God's decree. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Not only does he give us salvation in this life, he gives us all things to enjoy. As James says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Third question, verse 33, who can prosecute a believer? Who will bring charges against God's elect, Paul asked. God is the one who justifies. And I think you're catching on by now. The answer to the question, who can prosecute a believer, is no one or nothing. Now, throughout his letter to the church at Rome, Paul has created a courtroom motif. Remember, humanity was put on trial for its sin. And all were charged. The religious, the irreligious, the pagan, um, the Pharisee all come under the condemnation of God because we've all violated God's law. Paul sums up that truth in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the indictment. That's the charge against all humanity. And Paul brought a lot of evidence against us, and we all know it to be true. We're all sinners. And not only that, we've all been found guilty. We... we have to agree with God's assessment of humanity that we're all guilty and deserving of capital punishment. This letter of Romans also says that the wages of sin is what? It's death. That, that's the sentence that's been passed over all humanity. But instead of receiving that just punishment, God intervenes and sent his son as a substitute, taking on himself the punishment for all who would ever believe at the cross. And that's why we're going to study for three weeks leading up to Easter, the cross, to understand the implications just a little bit about how much God loved us. And God, the supreme judge of the universe, has declared his elect redeemed and forgiven based on his son's perfect righteousness that was imputed to all through faith. And there is no court of higher appeal. <laughs> the case is closed forever. Now, we've all been watching with interest the news as uh, a new Supreme Court justice is going through the confirmation process. There is no higher court of appeal than the Supreme Court of the United States. Once they make a decision, it is final. How much more so when God the Father, the creator and righteous judge of the universe, pounds his gavel and declares you forgiven there is no court of appeal. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. And you see what's happening here. Paul is fastening down tightly the case that he's made that we should have assurance of salvation. And he asks another question, the fourth question, verse 34. Who can punish a believer for their sins? Who is the one who condemns, verse 34 says. Christ Jesus is he who died but rather it was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And who can punish a believer for their sins? Answer, no one. 
and nothing. He goes back here to the idea of the mystical union that he's been alluding to throughout this portion of the book of Romans. That we are in Christ. Remember that's what he said in Romans 8.1. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. We are joined to him. We are engulfed by him. We are surrounded by him. And he's interceding for us. If anyone brings an accusation against us, they have to go through Jesus. And because Jesus is God, he is omnipotent. He cannot be overwhelmed or overcome by anyone or anything. And because we are in Christ, our salvation is safe and secure. Jesus, Paul says, is not going to condemn us after dying for us. That would make his own death vain and pointless. He's not going to do that. We are as safe and secure. Listen to this. We are as safe and secure in our salvation, if we're truly born again, as Jesus' place in the Trinity is safe and secure. Do you remember when Jesus went down to be baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist? God the Father audibly spoke from heaven, and he said, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am what? Well pleased. Jesus said he always never did the will of the Father. And he perfectly fulfilled the Father's plan. He lived a perfect life, sinless in every way. He was obedient, Scripture says, even to the death, the shameful death of the cross. And God the Father showed that he approved of the Son's sacrifice by the resurrection. And friends, that's what Easter's all about. It's God the Father showing that he is pleased with God the Son. Do you think God the Father will ever be less pleased with his Son than he is right now? That is the grounds for our assurance. So long as Christ has his place in the Trinity and we are in Christ, nothing can take away our salvation. The scripture says he's at the right hand of the Father. That is a place of honor. That is the place of power. That is the place of authority. That is the place of love. And he is constantly standing between us and any accusation of guilt. The point is, that will never happen. Nothing will become between ourselves and Christ's love. So who can punish a believer for sins? No one and no thing. Fifthly, who or what can take a believer from God? Now the rest of the chapter seeks to answer this question. Verses 35 through 39. But you already know the answer. Let's see if you do. Who or what can take a believer from God? No one and no thing. Nothing. Now, maybe uh, something you might think or, or some unanticipated circumstance can overpower or overwhelm God's good intention to preserve us. After all, we have parents that intend to do good things. They make promises to us, but something happens. They lose their job or um, they get sick and they're unable to fulfill some promise or obligation that they've made to us. Maybe our friend says they're going to do something, but they can't follow through because they were overwhelmed by some circumstance or life. And that's why it's important to know God's not like us, right? He is never overwhelmed by some circumstance. Um, there's no such thing as an unforeseen circumstance to God. He's, he knows the end from the beginning. And here's another theological peg to hang your hat on. Not only is he omnipotent, he's all-powerful, not only is he immutable, he can never change. He is omniscient. 
He knows everything past, present, and future. And so he can't be surprised. Now, verse 35 says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Speaking of our salvation, who can wrest it out of Christ's grip? Will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we think, well, Paul has sealed it up tight, this case he's made for the doctrine of assurance. He doesn't need to say another word, but, but just for giggles and grins, he does. Paul throws out some possible scenarios that people think maybe over, will overwhelm God. He just walks through them quickly. He says, what about tribulation? Could, could times get so difficult that God would have to renege on the obligations he's made to us? Laughable. Of course not. What, what about trouble, which is a, a twin cousin to tribulation? No, nothing could happen. No circumstance of life. No disaster could separate us from the love of God. We say, what about persecution? Maybe we could be persecuted to, to the point where God walks away from us or, 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 or we walk away from him. Or a famine. That is, could economic disaster arrive? Could nakedness arrive? By the way, these aren't outside of the realm of possibility, are they? Paul is speaking from real world experience. Go read what he wrote to the church at Corinth about his own life. Beaten with rods, stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, in jail often, all for the sake of Christ. He went through tribulation and trouble and persecution and famine. He said, I've learned to have a little, I've learned to have a lot. I've learned to be content, whether hungry or full. He has been a person who's known poverty and, and known riches, but it didn't change his assurance of salvation. So Paul was speaking from experience. He says, I can tell you that if you're truly born again, these things can't separate you from the love of God. He says, your faith will ultimately prove to be true. And these people were people that likely in just a few years were going to face some of these same persecutions. And Paul says, when you go through these things, not only will your faith come through intact, but it will be a one-sided victory. <laughs> he says, we are overwhelmingly conquerors. This is baseball season. My little boy had his first Little League game of the season Friday. And uh, last summer, my college alma mater won the national championship in baseball. And I'll tell you, it brought a lot of joy to me and a lot of my friends who waited a long time for our first national championship in any sport. And if you know the College World Series, it's a double elimination tournament. And so we played some very good teams, teams like Texas and Vanderbilt and Virginia. And we lost a game here or there, but, but we came to the championship game against Vanderbilt, who had won two national championships and were considered the odds-on favorite. And our pitcher threw a no-hitter through seven innings. And we hit the baseball 
And the next thing you know, we won. But we didn't just win. We overwhelmingly conquered Vanderbilt. It was not close. This is what Paul is saying. That when we go through persecutions, tribulations, and trials as believers, not only if you're truly born again, are you going to make it to the other side of that intact, it won't be close on the scoreboard. Overwhelmingly conquerors. Now he's saying don't, don't pretend that you won't go through hard times. In fact, when we start talking about the cross, one of the things we're going to say about the cross is what Jesus said, that if you're going to follow after him, you have to be willing to take up your cross daily and follow him. Paul's realistic, so he quotes Psalm 44, which spoke originally of the nation of Israel, which says, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Don't miss that. This is why Paul says not even death can separate us from the love of God. It is a real possibility that if you walk closely to Jesus Christ, it may cost you your life. And it did in the ancient world, and it is costing lives today in other parts of the world, and it may cost our lives if Christ doesn't come soon. But even if it does, we still overwhelmingly conquer through Christ who gives us strength. And so... uh, What's the question? The question is, what can separate us from the love of God? And so he goes on, verse 37. He starts talking about the things that people most fear in this world. Death or demons. Maybe something from your past could be brought up against you. Maybe something in the future unforeseen. Maybe some height or depth. He's just using every word he can find in his vocabulary to describe the possibilities that run through people's minds about God not bringing them to glory, not finishing what he started. By the way, this is what Paul said to the church at Philippi, wasn't it? He's convinced that he who began a good work in you will complete it. He will complete it. So what about spiritual entities? Can any of them overcome God? Of course not. They are subject to him. Nothing in this life Nothing in death, nothing physical in that realm, nothing spiritual in that realm, no distance, no amount of time, no one and nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Full stop. Amen. Now, what does that have to say to us today? Maybe you think, and you're convinced, perhaps, over these last two weeks that, yes, Pastor, I believe that. I believe that God is going to hold up his end of the bargain. He'll never let me go. But maybe you doubt your own ability to hold up your end of the bargain. If you'll come real close, I'll tell you a little secret. You never had an end of the bargain. It's always been all of God. You were saved by his grace, not by anything you deserved or did. It wasn't up to you to choose God. A couple weeks ago when I said the Holy Spirit comes around on the other side and helps us in our weakness, he wasn't talking about your salvation. That's already been established. He was talking about your prayer life once you already have been saved. That's the end that we hold up is we're obedient to him as he leads us. But it had nothing to do with your salvation. You didn't have a side in your salvation. It wasn't up to you to choose God. He chose you. It wasn't up to you. To love God first. He set his saving love on you before you drew a breath. It wasn't up to you to whip up faith from within because you didn't have any to whip up. Paul says salvation is by grace through faith and that not of yourself. It, faith, is a gift 
of God. It wasn't up to you to get saved. It's not up to you to stay saved. Thank God. Because as John MacArthur says, bottom line, how we can know we can't lose our salvation, because if we could, we would. We would. But we can't, so we won't. So grateful for a new generation of hymn writers, some in this church, who are writing beautiful and godly and Bible-based lyrics that we love to sing here. One of my favorites is He Will Hold Me Fast. My couple called the Gettys. Listen to the words which are based on Romans chapter 8. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. He promises, his promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. And then the final verse. For my life. He bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raise with him to endless life. He will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight. He will hold me fast. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, these months as we've studied the book of Romans have been challenging to all of us and yet Lord we have grown and we have been stretched and Father for the last month we've camped out at the summit the mountaintop of the doctrine of justification and as we look back from where we've come Lord we just have to say thank you praise God nothing can separate us from the love of God there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus so I voice this prayer on behalf of every believer here. Thank you, Jesus. Not only for saving us, but to keeping us. And your promise that you will keep us for all eternity. So Lord, I pray for one here today who is struggling with sin. Lord, I pray you give them victory. Father, I pray for one who's struggling with doubt. Give them assurance. Lord, I pray for one who knows you're not. That Lord, you would, uh, by your Spirit, Breathe spiritual life into them and grant them faith and repentance. And Lord, we are overwhelmed by your love. A love so great that you would send your own son to die in the place of guilty sinners such as us. So Lord, give us confidence in our prayer life moving forward, knowing that you've already done the greatest thing and you stand ready to give joyfully and graciously to your children that you purchased and adopted into your family any good thing we need. Thank you, Father, for these truths. We lift these prayers in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. 
To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.